that knowledge. I'm going to just ask you to bless our day. Thanks, Bobby. So good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday School. We'll be talking about Psalm 13 this morning, as it shows on the board. So when I was first approached about um, participating in the Psalm teaching a few months ago uh, by Pastor McKeever over here, um, and I went to the first the first teaching session. We've got it on, on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m., um, which uh, thankfully has worked out very well for me and my work schedule so far. Um, I usually start pretty early, and I'm usually uh, into the day uh, pretty hard by 7 a.m., but thankfully the last month or so we've been doing this, there have been no phone calls, no text messages, from 7 to 8.30 usually, except this last week. There was something that came up at 8 o'clock, but, um, so that's been a blessing. Um, but after the first lesson, I was talking to, to Jocelyn, and um, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really confused by this. You know, we're using words. Jeff's using words. I don't know what they are. A lot of poetry stuff. It's just, it's kind of frustrating, right? So she says, yeah, well, that's what the Psalms are. You have to, you know, work through that and understand what it is. So I was confronted by something that was in the teaching. I'm going to read it here because I thought it it, it touched me and I I thought it would benefit everyone else as well. Um, Forgive me if you've heard this previously. It's from uh, Craigie and Tate. Is it Craigie? World Biblical Commentary. So whereas the language of prose is utilized primarily toward direct communication, Poetic language is characterized by a more transcendent quality. There are aspects of human experience and aspects of the knowledge of God for which the mundane language of prose, that's me, the mundane language, (laughs) cannot provide adequate expression. Poetry is, among other things, an attempt to transcend the limitations of normal, a.k.a. prosaic, human language and to give expressions to something not easily expressed in words. Indeed, it may ultimately be inexpressible in human terms. And it goes on. To divorce the element of subjectivity from the understanding of poetry is to divest it of its power. So that really, really touched me. Um, the point here is we need to understand poetry in order to understand and experience God's word to its fullest, especially in the Psalms. These aren't just words on a page. They're the divine words given to God's people that have become the canon of Scripture. Um, the richness of, of God's word never ceases to amaze me. And, and having studied this psalm now and the other ones we've talked about over the last few weeks, um, it's, it's really been a blessing to me, and I, I hope this is a blessing to you folks as well. Um, also invite anyone who's available to participate in the Sunday or the Thursday morning studies as well. Those have been uh, just, just a blessing to me, as I mentioned. So we know the book of Psalms is a book of poetry, specifically lyrical poetry, And there's actually eight different types. Uh, The most common three are hymns, laments, and thanksgiving psalms. Uh, The Psalm 13 we'll be talking about this morning is a lament psalm. And I believe this is the first psalm we've done that's a lament uh, so far in this study, so we should define what a lament is. 
First, laments are the most common in the Psalms, numbering more than 60. That's over a third of the total uh, books or chapters in the book of Psalms. Laments are defined several different ways. Sidney Gradanus defines laments as cries, even angry cries, to God for help from an individual or the community in deep distress. The structure of lament psalm presents some or all of the following six elements. Some commentators actually say there's as many as 14 elements, and some less, only three. So here's the six elements of a lament psalm. Number one, an introductory petition for God's help. Two is a description of the trouble or complaint. And three, petitions for God's help. Four, reasons why God should hear. Five, examples of God's saving acts in history. And six, a vow to praise. Note that all laments, except Psalm 88, which if you read Psalm 88, it's more like all lament, uh, petitioning God for help. Uh, They move from lament to praise, expressions of joy, or a statement of confidence. Tremper Longman writes, The lament does not just express the distress of the person who suffers, but also begins to minister to that person by moving them towards a more positive attitude towards God and life. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Also, while the complaints come out of a real life and concrete situation, the psalmist writes in such, such a way that other worshipers who come afterwards can use the psalm as a model prayer for similar, though not necessarily identical, situations. We'll talk a little bit about that later as well. So the goal of a lament is to cry out to God for help when in distress and to find rest in him. And with that, we can read Psalm 13 together. So I'm reading from the ESV version. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? And have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So the theme I came up with, and this is probably not the best theme you've ever heard, but it's what I came up with, so I'm going to read it. Even though it may appear that God has forgotten us, we can and should trust his love and rejoice in him because he is God and his mercy is great. This psalm is a personal, individual lament as opposed to a community lament. And we know that because it says so. Um, The first part of the psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David, indicates that the author was David. And he's author of the other psalms in this neighborhood as well, in the book of Psalms. Psalms 10, 11, and 12 are all lament psalms, and sort of set the stage for Psalm 13. In Psalm 10, David asks, Why do you hide yourself? Which is stated again in verse 1 of our psalm. In Psalm 11, David points out the Lord's purposes and trials setting the stage for the eventual response in our Psalm 13. In Psalm 12, we see references in verse 1 that the faithful have vanished, 
again setting the stage for what might be inputs for lament, the petitions for God's help, and examples of God's saving acts in history. Verse 5 of chapter, or Psalm 12, says, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. This goes back to Psalm 13. How long? Verse 6 of Psalm 12, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Comparing the Lord's promises and words to a precious treasure that perhaps perhaps takes some time in the furnace of our, our lives to really be recognized for their purity. Verse 7, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. This shows David's confidence in the reliability of the Lord's promises. Coming after our psalm, in Psalm 14, also a lament, in that David mourns the wickedness of people who say there is no God. So all these psalms have a similar structure and themes, suffering, trials, questioning God, and wondering if he has forgotten his people, and then God's response, or a reiteration that he has not forgotten, and he will always be there for his people, and his promises will not be broken. It's important to note, again, regarding Psalm 13, the nature of God's, David's circumstances are not known within the historical context or his condition at the time this psalm was written. Although it's generally believed Psalm 13 originated very early in the period of the Hebrew monarchy. This brings us to another important feature of the psalm, which I alluded to earlier. The fact that there's no specific circumstance given makes this psalm all the more beneficial for us reading it in 2020. Uh, Some would say especially 2020. If it was identified as related to some underlying reason, such as being ransacked by your political enemies, which David was uh, several times, this might make it less relevant to us, say, if we were fighting a severe illness. As it is, it's relevant to us for any number of given circumstances. And that goes pretty true for a lot of the other lament psalms as well. So with that, let's take a closer look at the words of Psalm 13. So the first two verses are the complaint. Um, David questions God and accuses him of forgetting and turning his face away from him. We see the words, how long, repeated four times within the first two verses. This repetition caused Charles Spurgeon to refer refer to Psalm 13 as the howling psalm. How long, howling, Charles Spurgeon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, When we read how long, it's not literally asking, but it's rather giving us a picture of the waiting that is taking place. This is similar to what we see in Luke 2. We see examples of Simeon in verse 25 and Anna in verse 38, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. It also paints the picture of things not going so well for David at this time the psalm was written. One doesn't typically ask how long when things are going really great. Um, it's kind of like our, our youngest son, Callan, asking how long is this trip going to take during the first five minutes of a five-hour trip to Pennsylvania. Um, I also find some commentary from Andrew Fuller, um, who is an 18th century Baptist theologian. And Fuller writes, It's not under the sharpest but the longest trials that we are most in danger of feigning. 
And that's, that's really true, right? I mean, when you're, you're bogged down by something, it just doesn't seem to go away. Uh, it can really wear you down. So going back to the previous analogy, it's not the trips to Kroger, it's the trips to Pennsylvania <laughs> that will really weigh on you and cause you to ask, how long is this going to take? So where else do we see examples of people questioning God in the Bible? Um, in Genesis 15:2, Abram, later known as Abraham, questions God after God appears to him in a vision and says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the hair of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And the Lord responds, This man shall not be your hair, for your very own son shall be your hair. In verse 4. And we know that the Lord did keep his promise to Abraham, and he blessed him immensely, eventually. But he had to wait, and he likely asked, How long is this going to take? In 1 Samuel, Hannah, greatly distressed by her inability to conceive, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor, razor shall touch his head. I imagine Hannah asking various times through this ordeal, as she waited for the son that God will eventually bring to her, how long is this going to take? So do you ever question God, Christian? Do you ever feel forsaken? Do you ever wonder how long am I going to have to suffer from this illness? Work in this thankless job? Deal with this intense sadness that overpowers me and just won't go away? It's pretty easy for us, even as Christians, to ask those questions. As you see from the examples that I just point out from Scripture, we're not alone in asking those questions. In these first two verses as well, David also accuses God of forgetting him forever and turning his face from him. Some commentators take the word forever used here as a stand-in for death, because forever in the mind of a dying man means the grave. But we don't know for sure that this is the reference. Either way, being forgotten by God and his face turned away was a big deal for a member of God's chosen people. David's expectation, as was any good Israelite, was to be remembered by God and to see the light of his countenance. That's also from Craigie and Tate, uh, who I referenced previously. So you can imagine the level of anxiety that David was feeling at the time when he declared such a strong statement. Do you remember coming back to church three months ago, after being away for three and a half months, or whatever it was, it was a long time. Do you remember how happy and refreshing it was to finally see people's faces again, not just Jeff every Sunday morning on uh, the TV? (laughs) So imagine how David felt when he felt that, that God, right, who had been in him and pulled him out of the fire so many times before, was now looking the other way. At least that's how it appeared to him. And not just looking the other way, but completely forgotten. We see this in other areas of the scripture as well. In Exodus 2, we're told that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They felt forgotten and as if God no longer knew them. And the verse says, verse 23, Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. But what happened later on in chapter 5? 
Well, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and told him God's command to let the Israelites go. And what happened? Pharaoh made it even harder for the Israelites to do their work. They took away all their straw. They had to go find their own straw. And they were still kept to the quotas of that day of uh, their, their daily brick outtake. It was an impossible task. And they were not happy. And they went back to Moses and complained, which caused Moses to then question God, why did you not deliver your people? Have you forgotten us? We know, of course, that God eventually does deliver his people in grand form. But you can just imagine what Moses and the people were thinking at that time, completely forgotten by God. But back to our Psalm 13. Moving on to verses 3 and 4, which are the cry for help, where David recognizes God's ability to help him. And this is the most important statement I think I got out of this, this study. Um, again, from Craigie and Tate. Um, lament is pointless unless it culminates in prayer. So I'll say it again. Lament is pointless unless it culminates in prayer. Isn't that true? I don't know about you, but I tend to get stuck in the lament phase longer than I should most of the time. Get pretty comfortable in verses 1 and 2. In fact, sometimes I'm stuck so bad, I need someone to come pull me out. We see the word, lest, repeated three times in this section. David is reminding God, petitioning God, that he is struggling and needs help. And he lists specific reasons. In verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In verse 4, Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But God doesn't always answer the way we may want him to. One prominent New Testament example is with the Apostle Paul. We see the Apostle Paul praying earnestly for the thorn in his side to be removed. As far as we know, God did not do this for Paul. Yet the pain reminded Paul throughout his ministry, and we see it again and again in his letters, that he was weak and totally dependent on God for everything. Jesus even told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul did not necessarily want to suffer, but as we know, based on his own writings, he eventually was willing to suffer, knowing that God was using his suffering for a much greater purpose. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to suffer for a greater purpose? How might God be using our suffering? Have you ever thought about this? He might be using it as a testimony to others who are suffering, or as an inspiring example to others to ask you, why do you have so much hope? Why have you led them, which may lead them to a saving faith in him, in Christ? The truth is, we don't know all the ways God might be using our suffering. But there are some things we do know, because he tells us in his word. The first is that God loves you. He hears you. He is with you. He uses suffering to draw you near to him. I can honestly say, and I'm sure others can attest to as well, the most dire moments of my life, the first 42 years anyway, were also the times when I was the closest to God. And he was faithful every time. He didn't pull me out of those situations. I still had to endure them. But he gave me the grace to get through them. 
and he strengthened my relationship with him in the process. I can give many examples of that. Another thing we know about God and his word and what he tells us about it in his word is that he is there to help us and intercede for us. Jesus is the answer to every prayer because he is alive. We have all we need in him. Moving on to the final phase of the psalm, verses 5 through 6. The return to trust and praise, where David rejoices in the Lord's steadfast love. I want to bring attention to two literary devices in these sections because I think they're very relevant to how the poetry factor brings something a little extra to this passage. First, note the movements through these verses, going back to even verse 1. In verse 1, will you forget, moves to your steadfast love, in verse 5. In verse 1, will you hide your face, moves to he has dealt bountifully with me, in verse 6. In verse 2, sorrow in my heart, moves to my heart shall rejoice in your salvation, in verse 5. And finally, from my foes rejoice, in verse 4, to my heart shall rejoice, in verse 5. This is a very elegant illustration of how God remembers and honors the covenants that he makes with his people. There's also what we call a a chiasm in section verses 5 through 6. A chiasm, for those that don't know, is a sequence of elements of a sentence or verse, paragraph, chapter, even book, which are then repeated and developed, but in reverse order. So in verse 5a... I have trusted in your steadfast love is tied to he has dealt bountifully with me in verse 6b. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation in verse 5b corresponds to I will sing to the Lord in verse 6a. It's also important to note as a piece of bonus info that the example of chiasm here is supported by both content and verb tenses. My English major wife should be impressed that I'm talking about this right now. <laughs> Maybe we'll uh, leave this up until the, the next, next week and discuss that a little more. But what do we learn here from verse, verses 5 through 6? I think the main point is that David's faith is strengthened as he remembers who God is and sees God's work in his life and reflects on God's grace. The New Testament context of Psalm 13 is very, very strong. Uh, Jesus followed his own journey of lament. He cried out to God, the Father, for help, for his crucifixion, for the cup of wrath to pass from him. But he also trusted in the Father's will, as we see in Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus became the fulfillment of all of our laments. We cast our burdens on him. We ask him for help. He strengthens us through his spirit and his word that he has so graciously given to us. We respond with trust and worship. The sorrows of this life try to pull us away from him, but if we follow the journey of the lament, we will again draw toward him. So may we not start and stop our journey of lament, may we not get stuck in verses 1 and 2. May we push through by trusting in God's promises and praising him for the holy, merciful God that he is. There's also a very personal ministry application here. 
If you see someone lamenting or in lament, especially if it looks like they're stuck in verses 1 and 2, help pull them out. Remind them of God's promises, His faithfulness, His grace and mercy, His steadfast love, and how He has dealt so bountifully with us, as we see in the last few verses. With that, let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your rich, rich word. I'm pretty sure I didn't proclaim anything new here, Lord, but I pray that it was at least a reminder, Lord, to the folks here. And um, I thank you for making it a blessing to me. Um, I, don't, I feel very weak in the knowledge of the scripture sometimes, Lord, but uh, I want to get better, and I, I pray we'd all get better in that and uh, use these tools that you've given us to, uh, to do that, Lord. Um, I thank you. I thank you for this opportunity, and I'm I thankful, thankful that we're your humble servants, Lord, and may we continue to be used for your kingdom. It's your name we pray. Amen.